Good morning. It's good to be with you. Happy almost Thanksgiving. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, we come. We ask that you would create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. Would you cast us not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from us? Oh, give us the comfort of your help again and sustain us with your willing spirit. We pray this in Christ's name, our King. Amen. What is the secret to experiencing the power and knowing the enjoyment of the Lord? What is the secret to experiencing the power and knowing the enjoyment of the Lord? This is the question that Francis Schaeffer asked about 70 years ago. Schaeffer is one of the, my heroes of the faith. And many Protestant churches in his time were leaving the orthodox beliefs of the faith, while those that were more orthodox and, and, and uh, remained in the scriptures, what they did began to retreat and become insular. They began to cut, off, cut themselves off from society. But Schaeffer famously engaged the culture, helped people consider the, the world through the lens of Scripture, uh, primarily through his writing ministry, but also in his ministry in Switzerland called Libri, which is French for shelter. And people could come through, and he would help them work through their questions along and point them to the truth of Scripture and the truth about God and Christ. But, but before Schaefer began this work, he spent actually two years considering this question. Why was it that the churches of his day lacked so much joy and lacked power? Why didn't their churches look like what Scripture invites them into? The result of that two years of just meditation kind of is boiled down into four little pages called The Secret of Power and Enjoyment of the Lord. There's actually a bunch of copies in the back if you want to pick it up. This is one of the most important little four pages that I've ever read. I love this. And if uh, one of Schaefer's protégés says, if you read anything of Schaefer, read that. And so, but he answers it. But this, he's asking the same question that we're trying to ask as a church over the, these three weeks. How do we walk in step with the Spirit in our lives individually and, our, and in the church corporately? How do we experience the power and the joy of the Lord on a daily basis? Because to be a Christian is to be a spirit-filled person. Last week, Paul Mueller mentioned Gordon Fee. I, 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 the, the book, I meant to bring it up, it's on my chair. Uh, his book, Paul, the Spirit, and the People of God. We've been reading that as, as elders and elder candidates, and it's been incredibly helpful. And so I, if you, I, I invite you to check it out as well. And it's been helping us to think about what it means to lead, and, uh, lead the church to grow in this area. But again, to be a Christian is to be a spirit-filled person. Gordon Fee writes, To get saved means to, join, to be joined to the people of God by the Spirit. And to be saved means to live the life of the saved person. We are brought to life by the Spirit so as to live the life of heaven on earth. That's what we were looking at in Philippians being citizens of heaven on earth. But also, we're to, um, 
But also we're to live by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, sowing in the Spirit. Because we remember that the kingdom of God has dawned in the coming of Christ. That's why Jesus' very first words in the Gospel of Mark. Did you know this? Mark chapter 1. This is not our text, but it's helpful to see this. It's the very first words that Jesus utters is this in Mark chapter 1 verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And it has dawned in his first coming. And his spirit then, uh, but we, we, we remember that we're in this in-between. It has begun, but is not yet ultimately fulfilled. But his, his, his spirit was poured out on his people to mark that the kingdom has come. And, and the, the, God's spirit dwells with us, reminding us that he, we are the people of his very presence. And his spirit sustains us in this in-between time. The already and the not yet. So the Spirit-empowered life is meant to bring joy to the Christian. It's meant to build up the church, and it bears witness to the world around that the kingdom of God has come. So I want to ask, are you individually and are we corporately abiding in, walking in the Spirit? Do you know the firsthand joy and power of the Lord? Do you desire God's presence to meet you? Do you desire for His Spirit to be at work in and through you? Brothers and sisters, do you desire the gifts of the Spirit? I think a lot of us can sing a lot of those songs, but if we're honest, they're just kind of external words. And we, we, but our lives belie the fact that... Or, 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 or there's a dissonance between what we say and, and how we're living... Paul writes for us in our passage today in 1 Corinthians, we should desire the gifts. We should want to experience the joy and the power and the presence of God in our midst. And one of the ways that the Spirit has shown himself is through the giving of, the, of gifts to his people. The spiritual gifts are a manifestation of God's power and presence in the life of the people of God. That's what they're meant to show. They're meant to show the power of God and the presence of God to be a witness about the work of God. And they're meant to be employed by his people for the common good, as Paul preached last week, for the building up of the church. And just as a body has lots of different parts, so we have lots of different gifts that complement each other. And in order to work together through the Spirit to build up the church. And that's what Paul, again, if you did not, if you weren't here last week, or you, even if you were, go back and listen to Paul's sermon last week. It was outstanding. It's preaching from uh, 1 Corinthians 12. And we're going to pick up at the end of 1 Corinthians 12 as it leads us into chapter 13. So in your Bible, turn there. See, the Corinthian church was a church with issues. And these issues were threatening to tear the church apart from the inside. So Paul is writing this letter. But Paul writes letters for specific purposes. And this letter is written to help the Corinthians address concerns that they were, these issues that they were facing. 
and to help them rightly navigate. If you were to look at the whole book of 1 Corinthians, you would see that they were divided about uh, 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 who to follow, who was the better teacher. They were, they were confused about sex. They were confused about food laws. Then they were confused about the gathering. They were also confused about the issues concerning the resurrection. And so Paul is actually addresses all of these issues and says the way to navigate these as a church is to look to the gospel, to see this through the lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's how you're going to have order. And so he's addressing spiritual gifts because there were these issues that are arising that were creating divisions in this church, even as people were experiencing this power that God had given them. See, the, the, the church had been given incredible gifts, very visible gifts. Namely, that speaking in tongues and uh, speaking prophetic words and seeing visions and gifts of healing. But instead of seeking to build one another up, they saw it as a way to uh, boost their own stock in themselves. They, me they began to measure themselves and others according to the gifts that they were given. And so through these visual displays of God's power, people began to measure their maturity, measure the way that God has blessed them more than others. They, they were looking down and they say, you don't have as much value as I do because my gift is better than yours. But Paul is saying this is a completely flawed understanding. Look at me with uh, chapter 12, verse 27. He, he says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Has, and God has appointed in the church first apostles and prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And the implied answer is no. Just like your body isn't made up of all ears. That would be really weird. But there is a complementary nature to the gifts in the church. He says, look, there, all these gifts show the manifold grace of God. They show the manifold power of God. Not everyone has the same thing or even in the same measure. God gives as he will. He says, look, desire the gifts. That's what he says in verse 31. That's where our passage really begins. The, the, the chapter markings aren't really great between 12, 13, and 14. Our chapter really begins with earnestly desire the higher gifts. We should desire that God would give us gifts to see the Spirit at work with even the higher gifts, whether it's teaching, prophecy. We should desire these things. But he says... But I still want to show you a more excellent way to desire them. See, the Corinthian church was desiring them. But they were desiring them for, them, for their own selves. They were desiring them for a lesser reason. Paul says there's a more excellent way to desire them. There's a better way. And so, Paul is, is, is issuing this. He... he he stops his conversation about what the gifts are and how they work in the church to draw them to this more excellent way, to point them 
to, 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 to ground them and found them on something far better. Again, the Corinthian church had elevated the gifts to be ultimate. And as a result, the joy, real power, and witness of the church was in crisis. Paul says, desire that the Spirit's gifts will continue in your lives, but this desire must be founded upon love. It is here that we come again to the famous love chapter. If you have ever been to a wedding, you've heard this read. But do you see the context of it? It's within the sense of the spiritual gifts. It's, this is how we, we work with one another, use the gifts that we've given. That's, how, that's the grounding for this. That's the context for this chapter. Now, Pastor Justin is going to pick up in chapter 14 and talk about how we walk out, live out these gifts in the life of the church next week. But again, Paul pauses this conversation to ground us in this foundation of love. Again, the people were measuring their importance by their spiritual gifts they've received. And what happened, the, the, the gatherings began to be like a battle royale about whose gifts were better, who was more important in the gathering. There were elbows to show who was the better Christian. And it began to break down the community instead of building them up. And so Paul writes in verse 1 of chapter 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I have nothing. I am nothing. If I give all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Look, it seemed really impressive on the outside that people could get up and speak in languages that they did not know. It seemed really powerful to make known that which has been revealed through preaching, through sharing a vision, a word from the Lord. It seemed extraordinary to have faith. And the, hey, Paul's not talking about saving faith, but this... It's a special certainty about something and a boldness to pursue it even when it doesn't look like it's going to happen. It seemed inspiring to see those give their lives and their belongings to the poor. That's what he's talking about, giving your life to be burned. I don't think it's talking about martyrdom. I think it's saying you can give everything away to the poor, but if you're doing it for your own self-interest, it's worthless. So, but but it's, it's reasonable to see how people look at these super-Christians as the elite. But Paul says if these gifts are void of love, they are simply void. They, they actually count for nothing. These gifts are not just for our own spiritual flexing. The reality is we, too, live in an age of celebrity. And the Christian world is not exempt from it. The gifts made it seemed like those that the most spiritual were the most gifted, which led folks to lean into that and jockey for position. Look, I realize that some of us have been in churches with rising stars and celebrity pastors. They had all the external gifts, but they lacked love. Or rather, they misdirected their love towards themselves. They loved the attention the status they experienced, fueled by those who were not clear on what the gifts are actually for. And all too often, don't we hear stories of these gifted Christians who not only shipwreck their own lives, 
but leave a trail of wreckage in their wake, even in the news the past three weeks. Look, again, I know some of you have experienced the abuse that comes from this, the impact of narcissism in the church, the selfish pursuit of gifts, and I want to just be really clear. It's gross. That is not from the Lord. I'm sorry that you've experienced it. It's wicked. And it, ex- and it will be exposed as all sound and fury, but signifying nothing. Paul calls that out here. That is not what we're talking about. This isn't about fireworks and a cool show. This is about the spirit of living God at work in the people of God. But it's easy to fall into this trap. It's easy, to see, it's, it's easy for us to see false maturity in this as we measure success and value by the externals. And what happens is we begin to elevate some over others. We elevate ourselves against, uh, uh, over against others. And taken to the extreme, we even begin to doubt, or some of us have even been taught, that unless you have particular gifts, you're actually not even a Christian. Friends, particularly I'm speaking about those uh, speaking in tongues. Friends, speaking in tongues does not make you a Christian, and it never did, and Paul is very clear about that. These external visible expressions made it look easy to look spiritually in the outside, but, and, and don't get me wrong, the gifts are given by God and they are wonderful and beautiful. However, raw power by itself has the appearance of godliness, but it denies the staying power of God. That is, if we mismanage, if we misuse, if we manipulate God's good gifts for our own purposes, we actually sabotage the work of God. Paul says, actually, we're actually changed for the worse. Did you catch that? He said, we become hollow. We're nothing. We're like empty vessels that just ring. That's what those, those clanging cymbals were. They, were. they were brass cylinders that just echoed noise, that you're just hollow noise. He says that you become nothing, that you gain nothing. Uh, I I read this week, one brother said, No amount of strength like Samson, no religious pursuit like David, nor wisdom like Solomon can make you faithful if your life isn't fueled by love. You can can be the strongest man and still end up weak. Most religious men end up impious and be the wisest and yet a fool. The gifts are meant to showcase the presence of God and the power of God, not ourselves. And the difference comes with what is at the center. And Paul says it's love. But the question is, what does love look like? Love is a tricky thing in our age because it's really really fuzzy. It's like trying to nail jello to a wall to try to define love in our age. It's, It's mushy and emotional. But Paul does not leave it into the realm of mushy and feely. He spells out what love looks like. He says, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful, meaning it doesn't keep a mental record of events for the sake of some future action. For those soccer fans, this is what referees do. When you get a yellow card, they take out their little book and they write your name in it. 
So if you make another mistake, what do they do? They take out the, their little book again. You already have a yellow card. And what do you get next time? A red card. You're out of the game. This is not... This is what that, that resentful, it's keeping a mental record of wrongs to pull it out to drop it on somebody in the later day. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It doesn't celebrate or look the other way at evil, but rejoices with the truth that it celebrates the good. And love bears all things, believes all things. And let me just make a note, that doesn't mean it's gullible, but it actually, it looks faithfully and, and has faith in others. It hopes all things. It doesn't despair. It endures all things. It perseveres. And, and, and Paul, in this poetic fashion, shows us what love is. And in doing so, he actually is showing this 3D image of the ways that the Corinthian church was failing to love. We actually get this really uh, uh, beautiful picture or, or descriptive picture of, of what was going on in the church because of the way that Paul defines love. And he does so by showing what is and what isn't love. And what we see is that love at its core is relational. Love affirms the good in others. And it helps us to overcome the destructive aspects of our own character in those relationships. It celebrates the gifts of others, not needing to be at the center ourselves. What you see is love is not this wishy-washy thing. This love avoids the corrosiveness, the corrosive sins of envy, of boasting, of self-assertiveness, of anger and evil. This love nurtures the gifts of others. The love that Paul describes, uh, one writer says, provides both the stability and the consistency in which life thrives. This love has teeth. It has grit. It has practical use for everyday life. It does so because it doesn't originate in us, but in God. God is love. He is the very fountainhead of this type of love. That's what we were singing earlier. We become, and what we are reading in 1 John, we become recipients of this love that is brought through faith in Christ. This love is, is grounded in the gospel. And that's what Paul is showing the Corinthians and he's showing us. Jesus was fully empowered by the Spirit and perfectly embodied this love. And through faith, he shares that love with his people. Or through his work, he shares that love through his people and we become partakers of it by faith in him. Some commentators have noted that actually you could drop Jesus' name in verses 4 through 8 where every time you see love and the passage reads perfectly. Because this is how Jesus loved us, selflessly, seeking the good of others first and foremost. Remember from Philippians? He did not count equality with God something to be held on to, but emptied himself, becoming the form of a servant. Why? That we could become partakers with him in his glory. He shared. He loved others to bring them. Uh, love defined by, uh, you, we translate love. Uh, four main categories, but the love that, that Paul writes about is that, that agape love. It's the highest form, and it's this otherworldly type of love. It's a divine love. And it's the, the God's love that, that, that he has shown us through Christ. 
This is what Romans says, but God shows his love for us. Uh, they actually read the First John passage, First uh, uh, John 4, 9 through 10, and here's what 11 says. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also share our gifts with them. And Paul says this is so foundational because the gifts, because love is permanent, but the gifts are not. Go back to the passage with me. He says, look, verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they're going to pass away. As for tongues, they're going to stop. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial shall pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. Uh, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul shows them the purpose of the gifts and what they show. The gifts manifest God's glory, his presence, his power, and not our own. They show God's power in the world through his people. The, the, the gifts are meant to be a foretaste of something that's better. The gifts are not the final thing. Think about it. The very fact that God gives these gifts doesn't demonstrate our greatness, like the Corinthians thought. They actually demonstrate our weakness. And our neediness. To do the work that God has called us to, we actually need him to be the force behind the work. God is the one announcing the kingdom. He's the one building it. He's drawing others into it. And, and he, he's using us, but it is his power at work in and through us. This is an ongoing work that points to the day when Christ will return, his kingdom made complete, and his people will delight in his presence face to face. It will no longer be through the veil, but face to face. It is this moment when we see Jesus in his return that Paul is talking about in verses 9 through 10. And I draw attention to that because some have argued, and, I, and, I, and we want us to, to think well about this passage. He says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Some, have, some teach that these verses support a cessationist view of the gifts, meaning that the, 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 the sign gifts and the spiritual gifts no longer are practiced. And the perfect that, that is mentioned here refers to the scriptures. So when the canon is complete, the scriptures are complete, there's no other need for these other gifts, so they go away. But I think this is a mistake. Faithful brothers and sisters interpret the Bible that way, but I think they're, they're wrong. Because Paul's writing in the context, it's talking about the perfect coming. That's Jesus coming. That's his return coming. That's the kingdom in its fulfillment when it comes. And so the gifts will continue until they, we no longer need them because we will be face to face. The kingdom will be fully known all over the world. The glory of God will cover the, the earth as the waters cover the seas. See, the Corinthians didn't understand the already not yetness of the kingdom. And so they lived and saw these gifts as ultimate. But Paul says these are just a foretaste of what is to come. And this is why Paul talks about being a child. 
They were not yet fully mature. And no one is until that day when we see Jesus face to face. That's this mirror idea that he talks about. Mirrors were made of polished metal, like really polished metal. And you could see a reflection in them, but it wasn't a perfect image. So Paul is saying, look, the gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, as vital as they may be, can only offer an imperfect image of the spiritual realities that they represent. So he says, let's appreciate the spiritual gifts and their contributions, but remember that our faith is anchored, or or, our religion, our, our belief is anchored in faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. That, so that's why Paul says, look, these are beautiful things. Desire them. Earnestly seek after them. Run after them. But let your highest pursuit be that of love. Love for God and love for one another. So brothers and sisters, what does that mean for us? So what? How do we do this? It has been my hope and my prayer that we would see God's presence and power at work individually in our lives, but also as a church. I desire that we walk in step with and by the power of the Holy Spirit. But if we are to learn this pursuit, it must be regulated and it must be grounded in the greater pursuit of love, the love for God and the love for one another. If we do not prioritize this pursuit, as Paul has shown us, we will fail to see the fullness of God, of God's power and his presence in our lives and in the church. To seek the gifts without love will actually quench the spirit. And as a result, our spiritual lives will be stagnant and joyless. And quite, friends, we talk a lot about joy in the Christian life. The scriptures are full of it. Joyless Christians are uncompelling. They're boring. And Jesus calls us into a real, great, deep, full joy. Friends, let's not settle for anything less than knowing the fullness of power and the joy that the Lord invites us to experience. So by way of just helping us think about this, even over this next week, here's what I think the Lord's calling us into. One, brothers and sisters, desire the gifts. Paul says in 1231, earnestly desire the higher gifts. He says in 14, one, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. In 14, verse 12, he says, So with yourself, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. In other words, pursue the gifts. There should be no doubt what Paul desires for the church to know and for us to know. We should desire the spiritual gifts to be made known in our presence. We should want to see God in his full display. We should desire that the Lord would build up his church. And so therefore, brothers and sisters, study the scriptures. We should be talking about this regularly. We should be helping one another understand these passages. We should be praying toward this end. But don't just desire the gifts. More importantly, desire the gift giver. 
John Piper recently wrote this. I am astonished at people who say they believe in God, but live as if happiness is found by giving him 2% of their attention. If we want to see God at work, we ought to know what to look for, which means we ought to know him. If we are not walking in step with the Spirit, why would we know how to sense the Spirit's leading? Desire the gifts, but desire the gift giver more. Two, base this desire in the pursuit of love. Let me tick off a couple ways that we can do this. Learn love from Jesus. When we see Jesus' love for us, it's transformative. Look back at verses 4 to 7. He's kind toward us. He's patient with us. Even when we take his gifts and we mangle them, he's patient. He did not seek to serve himself, but gave of himself for the good of others. He wasn't stingy with his glory, but he shared it. Learning his love for us melts our hearts and teaches us how to love others. Here's really practical. I invite you to meditate on this, these verses for five minutes a day. Say, Jesus, how have you loved me this way? How have you gifted me and how have you been patient and kind with me? When we think about the love of God and the love of Christ that we've been shown, it melts our hearts and teaches us what love really looks like. And then I think it invites us to evaluate our love for others. Again, using verses 4 to 7 as a rubric. Say, am I kind and patient with brothers or sisters who are not like me? Do I insist on my way Or do I make way for others to use their gifts? Am I envious of others who have the gifts that I don't? Who are more visible in the church? Am I resentful when my gifts aren't noticed? And do I share what God has given me generously? Or do I hoard them? Where the Lord shows you that we're acting like the Corinthians, we should repent. And where God opens doors for us to step in, to use our gifts, we should step in. And that leads us to the third thing. We should commit to using our gifts and helping cultivate the gifts of others in the church. We should commit to using our gifts as well as helping others cultivate their gifts. Paul Mueller mentioned last week that the differences between, uh, the differences between membership and collective. Members are unique And are needed. They add a a particular value. If you're in Christ, you have been uniquely gifted to be used in the church to help announce the kingdom and build up the saints in a particular way. I'll say it this way. We get to play jazz together. What do I mean by that? I love jazz music. If you don't, that's okay, but you're missing out. But jazz, they're all playing the same sheet music. They all got the same music in front of them. But then each, and each section is playing their, a, a unique part that blends together to make this beautiful music. But then there are times when somebody gets to do a, have a solo. And if you were in that part, you may not play the solo that way. And so the temptation would be to try to prove your worth. But in a good jazz band, the others fall back, supporting that brother or sister in their solo. 
that they can really riff in a way that shines, that, that highlights their gifting. And that's what we get to do together. As we, as we use our gifts and encourage others to use their gifts, we get to play jazz together. It may be cheesy, but I love jazz, so it's beautiful. But we all need to get in the game together. Use the gifts that God has given you. Ask that God would show you how, how, um, how to use your gifts. And if the Spirit is leading you, and you don't really know what to do, talk to me, talk to a brother or sister, talk to a CG leader, help, to cult, let's help cultivate the gifts among one another. Friends, let us encourage people instead of minimizing or criticizing and saying, I wouldn't have done it that way. Let's fan the flames of the gifts that we see in one another. Let's pray for one another that we would use our gifts and that others would do the same. Pray that God would be pleased to do remarkable things through the gifting of the Holy Spirit in the life of this church. When we see people using their gifts, again, let us encourage them and walk with them. Let's be kind and patient as they work them out. Here's what I want you to do this week. Find someone that, may, that you go, I don't know that they've been encouraged recently, and I want you to reach out to them and encourage them in a specific, sincere, and non-flattering way. I don't mean to put them down. It's not a backhanded compliment. I'm saying don't look for them to encourage you in return. But say, hey, I, want to, I see how you're, you're serving, or I see how you're gifted, and I just want to encourage you. Thank you for that, and I praise God for that. Keep going. If we cultivate this type of culture of encouragement, it will breathe life into our relationships and in the community that will lead to a boldness to use our gifts for the glory of God and the good of others, whether they're big or small. Look, without love, oxygen gets sucked out of the room. When we pursue, and that's what keeps people on the sidelines. I don't want to put myself out there. But if there is love, we actually bring one another in and we fan the flame instead of sucking the oxygen out and killing it. Which frees people up to be used by God. And in so doing, we grow in our love and appreciation for the Lord who is the gift giver and our brothers and sisters who God has put us with. And here's the beauty. The love that we cultivate with one another, even when the gifts cease, the love will remain. When we see Jesus face to face, what is left is a genuine, a beautiful love for one another that has originated in God, the Father, has come through Christ in the power of the Spirit to each one of us. Brothers and sisters, here is the bottom line. When we seek the gifts grounded in love, I am convinced that we will experience and know the power and presence of the Lord in remarkable ways, even ways that we have not yet. And as he works, we will know the joys, the fellowship, the beauty of being led by this, his spirit together. We'll walk as the people of his presence in step with the gospel and in step with his spirit to the glory of his name. Let's pursue the gifts, being grounded in love, love for God, love for one another. Let's do so that we would know as individuals and as a church the power and enjoyment 
of walking in step with the Spirit of the living God. Let's pray. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence, and take not your spirit from us. Give us the comfort of your help again, and sustain us with your willing spirit, we pray. Amen.